You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Milwaukee Mafia. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, we're back again. Yes, we are back. And I think we're we're on to a new story now, right? Yeah. Because we kind of finished up a two-parter in the last episode, so what do you got for us? Well, that was the two-parter, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. it was. The rise and the fall. Yep, yep. Well, this is yep, a brand new one, not connected to that in any way. Where are we headed today? So today, I'm going to tell the story of Sam the Book Labrizi. I'm going to go out and venture a guess that this gentleman is into gambling. He sure is. Okay. <laughs> he sure is. Just just to clarify up front, I say his name as Labrizi. That may be wrong. It may be Labrizi or Labrizi. If you're at home and you're screaming and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> I, sorry, I'm going to say it as Labrizi. Just, just deal with it. I that. think we can all get on board with it. Okay. So it sounds like a good pronunciation of the name. Otherwise, otherwise... Apparently, I must not be alone in this because most people just called him Libby. They Maybe call, you they, should just call him Libby. They, That's called, a... him, they called him Sam Libby. <laughs> Apparently, they didn't know how to say his name either. <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to run through. This is like his whole life story in just a couple pages. Okay. All right. So as a kid, 14 years old in the 1930s, he's arrested for gambling. <laughs> okay. So we're starting, we're starting right into it. Yeah. <laughs> He's then arrested for throwing stones in an automobile. He's arrested for sneaking into a theater. He's arrested for suspicion of theft. And most of these, because he's a kid, they basically just let him go or minor, minor trouble. A cab driver was robbed in December 1939. He was suspected of being the robber. He was released by the captain of the police when a positive identification could not be made. He was arrested for suspicion of burglary and rape on, wow. on August 19, in August 1942, but was released by the police. So he's not convicted of that. Now we're jumping ahead. He's an adult now. He's arrested in February 1954 for being at an obscene stag party. His bail was set at $150. <laughs> can you give us a definition of an obscene stag party? I sure can. <laughs> Which is actually kind of redundant because I think I think like stag parties in general are obscene. So what ha- what happens is this: back in the day, before pornography was really available, before it was legal, I should say even like you, you couldn't you couldn't get it legally. Okay. A lot of times they would have what were called stag parties. This was very common with like a bachelor party kind of situation, and. People would have eight millimeter or sixteen millimeter rolls of film mm-hmm. with on them, <laughs> and they'd show them at at the party. Okay, and that's not legal today. It's probably okay at that point in time. It was not legal. Somehow the police caught wind that they were showing this at the party. I got I got to take this a little off on a tangent just because I'm curious. Yeah. At what point in time did pornography become just a thing? Do you know? Maybe like early 70s. 70s? Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. I don't know the exact answer. I'll, I'll go off on tangent for, for a second with you. I can tell you that like the early 70s, there was, it was at that point, the big name movies were being shown in the very questionable theaters and it, they were basically legal to show them. Mm-hmm. The problem was 
there was, and I think still is, although they don't really enforce it, there was a federal law saying you couldn't put obscene material across state lines. Some of the some of the big films that came out in the early 70s are like Deep Throat, The Devil and Miss Jones, Behind the Green Door. Not that I know anything about any <laughs> I was just going to say, man, you're a wealth of knowledge when it comes to pornography. Yeah. <laughs> but these were these were like the movies that would that would play, but the FBI would like track them because it was perfectly legal to show them in the theater. If you have a print of these movies, you got it from somewhere. Right. And you probably didn't get it from the guy down the street. So they ended up tracking these things as they were traveling around the country and busting people for selling them and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, and essentially, really, if they show it in one state and then show it in another state, I mean, aren't you busted? Because obviously across state well, lines... if you know it's the same, it's, if it's the same one. Yeah, I yeah. mean, interesting. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's off on a tangent. But definitely, like, by the early 70s, they actually had like theaters dedicated to that sort of thing. And and you think that now that law of crossing state lines with pornography might still be on the books just nobody cares. I would be willing to bet it's still on the books, but yeah, I, it's just not enforced. Obviously, obviously there's they don't do anything about pornography. Yeah. going <laughs> state to state anymore. That's I mean, good luck. You can't really stop that one. But anyway, so yeah, so he's at this thing Apparently, this must have been one heck of a party because the police arrested 247 people. Wow. <laughs> was the largest raid for Vice, that, that this falls into their category of Vice, in Milwaukee's history up to that point and maybe since. <laughs> That's a pretty massive. Tuesday, December 28th, 1954, officers arrested Kono Labrizi, known as Kono the Weasel, for obtaining $24.50 worth of concrete under false pretenses. <laughs> Which probably was a significant amount back in those days. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> Doesn't seem like a whole lot to, right now. Yeah. So When the police showed up to arrest him, his brother, Sam, the focus of our story, and their mother, Josephine, tried to stop the police from arresting them, and they were then arrested for disorderly conduct and obstructing justice. So that's fun. Yeah. Kono, I'm not going to talk about. He's like his own thing. He had a long history with burglary, pimping, sex trafficking, just really slimy guy. Sam's at least, you know. Oh, gambling. Kono, his brother, ooh, gross. He, he was in the really dark areas yeah. of it all. Yeah. In May 1956, Sam is arrested for selling fake soap. Okay, now we, now we got to go off on another tangent. I can't, because... <laughs> I can't help, cannot help you. You can't help me with that one? No, I wish I could because this is actually something that happened to many guys, at least the mob guys, selling fake soap. But I have no idea what that means. Okay. <laughs> so you just see this over and over again in files, but I've never found a definition of what that means? I've seen it on rap sheets a few times, yeah, but I don't know... What fake soap? I mean, obviously it's soap that's not real, yeah. but uh, but I don't know what what they're putting in it. Interesting. All right. By the early 1960s, we find out that Sam Labrizi is handling football and basketball pools, gambling pools, from a quote-unquote headquarters 
at 2752 North Holton, which is um, just a little bit north of Brady Street. People familiar with Milwaukee? Sometimes they would offer them and sometimes they wouldn't offer them. It would depend on how much, quote-unquote, heat was coming down from federal authorities. They knew that these tickets were coming in from Chicago. They weren't sure exactly from who, but they'd come into Milwaukee from Chicago, and then Sam Labrizzi would handle the gambling there. So when they're coming in from Chicago, do you know, does that mean basically this is kind of being run by the people in Chicago, essentially? Basically. I mean, there's... These guys, Sam Labrizzi and his buddies, are answering directly to Frank Balistrieri. Kind of like a bigger gambling hub in Chicago, because there's more... It, it's kind of hard to explain it. There's there's guys in Chicago who are, like, really, really good at setting up what they call the line, like the odds. And I don't know that Milwaukee had guys that actually set, like, the point spread on games. Kind of relied on shot on Chicago to come up with those numbers. Yeah, and I wonder if even still, like, the people in Milwaukee just viewed the Chicago lines as being more reliable than whoever was doing it in Milwaukee, so they wanted the Chicago lines, so that's why they had to buy it from Chicago. Yeah, it, I mean, it could very well be. It's it's just, it's weird. It's weird that Milwaukee didn't have their own guy. The Chicago the guy in Chicago is a guy named uh, Don Angelini, and his mob nickname, this is totally true, I'm not making this up, his mob nickname was the Wizard of Odds. <laughs> that was his thing. He just knew how to do this. Today, I mean, Vegas has, you know, guys that can do it all day long. Mm -hmm. Back then, to try to figure out the odds, like, it was really a time-consuming process because he had so much to consider about, right. you know, who's injured this week and who's whatever. Yeah. Now they just probably feed it all into a computer and the computer spits out the data points. Yeah. And whereas they didn't really have that privilege back then. Right. You want you want the best guy coming up with that because otherwise, being a bookie, you're not going to make money because you, you, you're relying on those numbers to be right so the house always wins. Anyway, so they're doing this, uh, Labrizzi and his buddies. Apparently, they've got friends in the Milwaukee Vice Squad. Vice Squad also oversees gambling as well as prostitution because... Whenever there was a raid, they always seemed to kind of not have a whole lot going on. It seemed clear that they were getting getting tipped off in there. On one occasion, in December 1961, apparently their odds numbers were not good because they ended up going bankrupt. Ooh. So they had to contact Felix Eldericio in Chicago, who was a buddy of Balistrieri's, and Eldericio was able to get them $3,000 to get back into business pay off whoever they owed and keep going. I'm sure that didn't make Eldericio very happy. No. <laughs> a member of Milwaukee Vice Squad called Sam Labrizzi at his tavern on March 5th, 1962, warning him that there was a raid coming and advising him to clean up his gambling materials. A few things were missed, and the Vice Squad found them and brought Labrizzi to the police station. While there, a sergeant allegedly chewed him out for not having cleaned up better. No charges were brought. They For not cleaning up better? Cleaning up the gambling materials better. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, the, uh, if I understand the way this was written, is that he's warned, clean up your gambling materials, there's going to be a raid. The raid comes, they find some stuff anyway. He gets brought down to the station, and the sergeant at the station is like, why didn't you clean up better? <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't charge him with anything, so it was fine. 
A federal grand jury started investigating gambling in Milwaukee in March of 1962. So the local police aren't doing their best job. Federal grand jury comes in and starts investigating. They're asking, you know, questions of different gamblers through town, finding out who the big bookies are. And, of course, sooner or later, you know, the names come back, and Sam Labrizi is on that list. He ends up getting subpoenaed and testified before the federal grand jury. A few days later, he's actually called very early on in the process. We don't know what he said to the grand jury. So we can assume that he did not be super truthful with them because that <laughs> would not be in his best interest. The FBI was provided with Labrizi's betting books, which were part of the materials that were confiscated by the vice squad. So they were actually able to go through them, and they tried to do their best to decipher them. Apparently, like when bookies keep records of transactions, they're really good about putting it in like a code or putting something. Putting it in a code. Nobody's actual names on everything. Everybody either has a number or a nickname or something. So it's hard to actually show what any of the numbers are. When they were going in in busting up these things, mm -hmm. did they really care about the people that were gambling or were they just more or less like, would they go back then and like prosecute somebody who had placed a bet if they could figure out who it was? Most of the time, no. Okay. They were more or less just looking to shut those people that were running them down and get rid of yeah. them, basically. Like the, right? gam the gambling was illegal. It's really like the bookies that were the were. target. It was helpful to know who the gamblers were. Because those are the guys you're going to need to testify. If you if you confiscate these books and they show all these bets taking place, but nobody admits to making any bets, bets. your case is pretty weak. Mm -hmm. You got to kind of get the gamblers on board. One of the gamblers met with Augie Pomizano, who was working for Labrizi in March 1962 at a coffee shop. Pomizano was collecting money for the bets that a man named Eisler lost. The man said he could not pay, and Palmazano suggested that the man's mother had money. The man told Palmazano to leave his mother out of it. <laughs> Palmazano then said, you have friends in the police department. We have friends, too. I'm not threatening you, but someone else could take care of you. Palmazano then met up with Sam Labrizi at the other end of the bar, who was <laughs> overhearing this whole thing, and they drove off in Labrizi's car. A few days later, Augie Pomazano pulled a co-worker at American Motors aside and said, Sammy wants you to pay off. The co-worker owed $621, a debt that he could not afford to pay. The FBI went to American Motors, where Pomazano worked in the daytime when he wasn't doing his gambling stuff. Um, they interviewed Pomazano, and he did not want to answer questions about how long he had been booking. He was then warned that the Bureau had received complaints of him threatening people who could not pay gambling debts. And since those people were now under federal subpoena, any further threat would be obstruction of justice. The agent also talked to another, also talked to another employee and was given two college basketball schedules printed by the Angel Kaplan Sports News Service. And Angel Kaplan is the company run by Don Angelini. Okay. That's, that's the Angel and Angel Kaplan. So the Wizard of Odds... Uh, <laughs> college basketball schedule with his special <laughs> special thing on there. <laughs> Around 9 p.m. on March 22nd, 1962, not the FBI, but the IRS. Of course. Arrested 
Sam Labrizi, and Augie Palmisano. Uh, Palmisano was at work at the time of the arrest. The law required gamblers to register and pay a tax, which they had not done. They were charged with engaging in the business of accepting wagers without having paid that tax. On the raid were four deputy marshals, six tax agents, U.S. Attorney James Brennan, and Brennan's assistant, William Mulligan. The arrested men asked for attorney Dominic Frenzy, the known mob attorney, but he was out of town. Attorney Norman Schatz appeared in his place. U.S. Commissioner John McBride set bail at $5,000 each. Schatz asked to have the bail lowered, pointing out, quote, The charge these men are facing doesn't even carry a prison sentence, but merely calls for a fine. Well, your bail's a little excessive. <laughs> Schatz was told by the uh, U.S. attorney that several of our citizens who gambled with them have been threatened. Ultimately, their bail was paid by a bail bonding company. Shortly after this raid, the U.S. Marshals came and criticized the IRS for how they handled the arrest. Apparently, the IRS busted in with guns, and they said, IRS agents shouldn't be carrying guns. <laughs> I was just going to say, what? <laughs> yeah. He said, we know, like, legally you can have guns, but you guys aren't trained <laughs> to, to, to have guns? To, to handle guns. <laughs> so you probably shouldn't be busting in pointing guns at people. <laughs> he says to, to these guys, he goes, quote, there was no need to deputize anyone. We can conduct those raids ourselves. We don't need to use anyone who isn't completely familiar with firearms. We have a lot of people who like to play cops and robbers, you know. <laughs> let, the, let the guys who were trained in this do this. Have you ever heard of an instance like that where somebody, where the IRS goes after somebody and busts in with guns? Was this a thing that happened back then? This was very, very rare, apparently, because like for them to get chewed out, this is apparently not the yeah. normal procedure. Yeah, I, I guess that does make sense. Yeah. Which kind of makes you wonder, like, why, what made this situation push them to do that? I don't, I don't it's know. It's strange. I don't know. But yeah, the the IRS agents' bosses are like, I mean, you know, legally they can have guns. We do have a shooting range. He goes, that we don't make them use it, but I mean, they can they can use it. But they might know what they're doing. <laughs> That's really comforting. Yeah. <laughs> I want to swing back for a minute because you yeah. were talking about this tax that they were. They, yes. This is how we got arrested because they weren't filing this tax. Yes. And I think we talked about this on a previous episode. We like, may have. This tax is... Even though it's illegal, nobody pays this tax because it's illegal to gamble, right? Right. Do you know, was that tax just there as a way, another avenue for them to be able to arrest people? Or was yes. there an instance where somebody would pay this tax because there was some sort of gambling that was legal? Sometimes people pay the tax. The whole thing, the whole thing is, is garbage. <laughs> well, it I mean, sounds like it. What it was, was if you were a bookie, you were supposed to have a gambling stamp, which was like this annual fee you paid. And then, of course, you'd have to pay income tax on the money you made from your gambling income. Which makes it sound like gambling was legal. <laughs> well, but it wasn't. But it wasn't. But, it, <laughs> but it's still income, so you got to report it. Nobody, nobody would. You're supposed to. The thing was, is like they would get you on the stamp because you'd have to get that each year to be, that's, it's a really goofy thing. 
Because if you don't have it, you're breaking the IRS rules. But if you do have it, you're like signaling to everybody like, hey, I'm a registered bookie, (laughs) which is not legal. (laughs) (laughs) And, And later on, this ends up going to the Supreme Court, not these guys specifically. This issue goes on to the Supreme Court, and they do strike it down saying, you can't make somebody get a stamp for that. Yeah. Because you're basically causing them to admit a crime to the government that by their rights as an American citizen, they don't have to admit their own crimes. Yeah. That is that is a really, really bizarre system. Yeah. And what a, I don't know. Yeah. I, I would have loved to been in the meetings for that and just heard how they were discussing this and how this seemed like a reasonable idea of, <laughs> to implement. Yeah, I'm not sure how it started, but it was in place for quite a while before it got struck down. Like this wasn't just like a one year thing. Like, it went on for some time. Interesting. At the next court hearing, they got their bail lowered from 5000 down to 1000 which really doesn't make much difference at this point because they've already paid, they're out. Their regular attorney, Dominic Frenzy, is back. He argued for it to be lowered. His argument was that a man was recently convicted under the Smith Act, which was the anti-communist federal law, and he was released on $5,000. And he goes... By your reasoning, if my guys have $5,000 and this communist has $5,000, you're saying it's as bad to be a misdemeanor gambler as it is to be a communist, which keep in mind, this is the early 60s. That's about the worst thing you can be. Be, right. Yeah. But I think I his argument, he's leaving out the fact that they have multiple reports of them threatening people. Right. And I'm assuming that that's why this they made the the bail so high is because they legitimately thought there was a risk of these peop these two going out and actually doing damage to people because they weren't getting paid. Yeah. Frenzy continues to talk to the judge, uh making various points. He says, first of all, these arrests were handled very poorly. Eleven people were used to arrest three guys on misdemeanor charges, more guys than you needed, mm-hmm. I would have willingly helped save taxpayer money by producing these men. I could have, you just sort of said that they were wanted. I would have handed them over to you. <laughs> this is an interesting complaint he makes. He goes, also, you made the arrest at nine o'clock at night, which is a really stupid time to make such an arrest. If you wanted the best evidence possible, you should have arrested them between 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock in the morning. The reason for this is because horse race gambling closes at noon. Why he's pointing this out, I don't know. <laughs> in the future, if you're going to arrest gamblers, do it like when they've got all the gambling money. <laughs> I think he was just frustrated at the stupidity of the police in this scenario, and he yeah. was just pointing out all their mistakes. Yeah, and then lastly, he's like, these guys aren't a flight risk. I, I grew up with them. They've lived their entire lives in Milwaukee. They're not leaving Milwaukee. You don't need to set bail that high. Various gamblers held a meeting at Nunzio Maniachi's Tavern on North Avenue in March 1962 to discuss what they would do about the new rule saying they had to pay 33% of their earnings to Frank Bellastri. No decision was reached, but they feared if they refused that one of them would get killed. They talked amongst themselves, and they suspected the one of them most likely to be killed first 
would be Frank Sansone. Don't know why they <laughs> why they picked him out and he doesn't get killed. Why they thought that he would be like the weak link, I don't know. On Mar- in, also in March 1962, a federal grand jury formerly indicted Labrizzi and Palmisano for the same charge from earlier, failure to pay a gambling tax. This was following the testimony of five witnesses who all came forward and talked about their gambling activities. They pleaded not guilty. A trial date was set for the following year. <laughs> they were charged in March. The trial was the following February. Long story short, things eventually go to trial. They go on. The evidence is very clear that they're bookies and they're not paying the gambling stamp fee, which is $50. <laughs> and they are found guilty, guilty and given a fine of $1,000. That's a pretty hefty fine for... Not paying a fifty dollar fee to to the IRS, I would say. It is. It is. It's kinda like the long story short. Labrizi was uh was a big bookie for this period of time. Pomizano, who's working with him, ends up getting to be even bigger. He will become a murder target later. And Labrizi's two sons also became big bookies and they would they'll come back later. As, as major bookies, one of whom I can talk about and one of whom I can't because he's still alive. Right. They'll come back. This Sam Labrizzi, this guy, his son's also named Sam Labrizzi. This Sam Labrizzi, like, not super exciting, kind of like a stepping stone to build up to these these other guys. Kind of get, gets you to know Palmazano a little bit where he's, what his background is because he's going to be a big guy coming up. And it's always interesting to hear just just the what the government went through to bust something that we just don't even see as anything to even bother with right. nowadays. It's it's just kind of amazing <laughs> to me. Like the steps they went to to bring this guy down. And for what? For a thousand dollar fine? Yeah. Sam Labrizzi, the book. <laughs> the book Sam the Book Labrizzi. He ends up passing away young. He's only fifty years old in nineteen seventy. His funeral is handled by the Guadalabene Funeral Home, of course. At the time of his death, he operated Libby's Cocktail Lounge, which actually still existed up until a couple of years ago, which was, oh, on, really? which was on near the corner of like Van Buren and, uh, and Brady. The newspaper said that he was one of the first men ever in the country to be arrested for federal gambling violations. I don't know if that's exactly true. That seems maybe overstating it. Definitely was on the front end because these gambling laws really only went into effect around 61, 62. So him going and getting arrested in 62, this actually, he was one of the earlier guys. I don't know if he's like one of the first. His funeral was well attended. Several known mob guys were there, including Steve DeSalvo, Frank Balistrieri, Tommy Mackey, August Pomizano, Frank Sansone, who was a gambler that did not get killed, Walter Broca. Joey Nea, Peter Balistrieri, and many others. Definitely, you know, he knew all the right guys. And kind of probably was the one that really probably pulled the mafia into gambling, maybe, even? Well, he, no. Well, they were into gambling. Gambling. But he's like the first, like, really big bookie. A lot of these other guys that are going to be known, 
kind of came out from him. him. They knew him. They worked for him. He was probably one of the first really big, big ones. Prior to this, it was more or less, you're a guy who knows a bunch of guys that gamble through you, where this guy was probably doing it on a much bigger, grander scale when it all comes down to it. Yeah, I think this is about this time is when things were like switching with how they were done. Prior to this, there were a lot of gambling games that came out of like people's houses. We've talked in the past about people having like craps games in their house. Mm. Or if they were really, really well set up, they might have the telegraph wire that comes in and gives them race results or sporting results or whatever. I think this is kind of coincides with the time where everybody's kind of using the telephone. You can call into your bookie. So he's like one of the first big bookies that's like, that could, get, getting the phone calls. calls. Yeah. He could be literally sitting in an office and just answering phone calls and taking his his bets. Yeah. And which, people from all over really could be placing bets through him. Right. Because it, of that. The younger the younger audience here that listens, because I know we have a lot of young, long, young fans, they're going to be like, why couldn't people use the telephone before? <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is a whole other thing. This is about the time where people were really getting access to phones because phones were very weird. And now you have a phone line that runs to your house. Well, you don't anymore because you got a cell phone. But yeah. if you want, if you want a landline, you get a line that runs to your house, and you can put a phone anywhere you want in your house. Back then, every single telephone, the actual physical telephone, was owned by the phone company and had its own designated number. So you had to actually purchase the phone from the phone company. So it was like a big deal to have a phone. phone. And on top of that, most people didn't have a designated phone number. You shared your phone number with a couple other people on your block. So when the phone rang, you'd have to listen to make sure it was your tone to know that oh, it was... Oh, really? Your... There was actually a tone? Yeah. Usually it would be like for... It would be like three houses side by side. And it would either go ring, ring... Or ring, ring, ring. You know, it would be like slightly different. Do you know which one was yours? And was this when like I got a phone call? Mm -hmm. it, it was this like in the era of like the party line? That's, where, that's exactly what this where is. Where your neighbor could pick up their phone then and listen to you yeah. talking to the other person. That's exactly what this, this is. is. Okay, which is which is why I'm saying like calling a, a, a bookie on the phone and making like a bet. You could do it up to this point. Any of your neighbors are, could listen in and, and hear you making the bet. Right. So this might not be the kind of information you want to talk about over the phone. <laughs> As we're moving along to where the fewer people have party lines and more people have a designated line, it increases this availability for bookies to take bets over the phone. Now that you say that, now you think about it, this is why this this is probably a huge part of the reason why gambling became such a focal point at this point in time because everybody that was doing it could do it at such a greater scale now mm -hmm. because the technology allowed them to. And it stopped being, it started being more of a, where you could do it as a legit, almost like a legitimate business rather than like more of a handshake backdoor type thing. Right. Which is interesting. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Like I said, I'm not a gambler. I obviously didn't grow up in this time period. This is what I see as like how things are shifting mm -hmm. um, based on, like you said, the available technology and just whatever. Bookie, the way that we, if, if anybody has an image of a bookie, I do. Maybe other people don't have an image <laughs> of a bookie. But the way I picture a bookie, this is like really when that starts 
being what we picture it as. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy who sits by the phone or or maybe in the back corner of a restaurant or something. Right. This is when that guy really kind of gets going. Gotcha. Okay, and there was one other thing you mentioned about that I wanted to touch back on a little bit. And that's, you mentioned in there at one point in time that Frank Balistrieri came out with a a new rule that you had to kick back like 33% or something of your earnings to him. Yeah. Prior to this... How was the mob making money off of these guys if they weren't taking a cut of their... I think they were taking a cut. I don't know if if the cut just increased or if they were being more serious about it, like actually trying to crack down on it. I don't know. But again, this might be, this might be again, that technology shifting. If there's a crap game or a poker game or something, if the mob's aware of it, they got a guy sitting in on the game... They take a piece of the game when they go. Mm-hmm. This kind of is like more decentralized because now, you know, the bookie can be anywhere. Right. So maybe, and I never really thought about this, but maybe that's kind of the thing. Maybe like this is like why he's putting his foot down so hard at this point because now there is less oversight on these guys because they can be more independent operators. And maybe it just got to the point where he knows Maybe they were all cu- kicking him back money. Yeah. But he knows that, no, you're bi- what you're doing is growing exponentially. And what you're kicking back to me is not even close yeah. to what I should be getting from all of this. Yeah. And so he put his foot down and said, this is the percentage that needs to come back to me. And if it's not, we're going to do something about yeah. it. And that could, you ask some great questions. <laughs> uh, you should, no, I seriously, you do. I mean, you always do, but I think, but I think today, today you really did because I'm, I'm relying so heavily on newspapers and FBI reports that things that aren't reported, I don't generally think that much of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but you're coming in at a different angle, like where you're like, well, why is it this way? And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm so glad that you asked that because I don't know that my answers are right, but at least you're getting me to think about it. Right, and we should be very clear to everybody that when I ask those questions, a lot of what we're saying is just purely speculation, right. looking at the scenario and trying to figure out why would it be doing this way. But right. yeah, no, so. I think I think they're great. That's. It's always good to kind of think about things from a different angle. And like, and especially like th- this episode in particular, I mean, maybe people disagree, but I think the gambling stuff is so dry. It like, is. But it's like, but unfortunately, it's a necessary part of the story. Like there's going to be gambling episodes. Right. And it, it is dry, but I also find it interesting because I find, I just find how they do, did these things back in the 60s, it doesn't really yeah. matter what it is. Yeah. Like, you could do a podcast about how they made soap back in the 20s, <laughs> and I'd probably find it interesting. Well, let's see, we got to find out why. Or, why, why, yeah, it's, or, why soap is Or fake. how they made counterfeit soap, or yeah. whatever the term was for it. In that. Yeah, we'll have a special episode just on fake soap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> could do that. All right. So with that, uh, do you got anything else? For this episode? No, not really. Like this is this is the thing. Like he's got this long list of arrests growing up that never really amounted to anything. But by the time the FBI gets on the scene, he's already like the bookie. Like he's the guy. The IRS takes him down shortly thereafter. 
And then he just kind of like sits in the background until he, he passes away, away at the young age of 50. Yeah, and you said he was running a bar at that point. Was yeah. he out of gambling at that point? I highly doubt it. I okay. highly doubt he got but, out of gambling. It, it, But at that point, they apparently they backed off because the FBI files on him after this IRS arrest, I mean... They they catch up with him every now and then, like he's at meetings with other questionable guys. They're never like actively trying, trying to, to do anything to him. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, then I think we could wrap this episode up. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Yeah. We do have a Patreon. You can jump over to MilwaukeeMafia.com and check that out. Also, there is a link in the show notes for that. And... We do have a new mailing list coming. Yeah, what is that? Well, it, it's March 1st will be Gavin's first issue be oh. coming out. So, so that's firm. We have a day. Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully we'll have subscribers to that mailing list at that point in time. Okay. But cool. yeah, we're going to we're gonna launch that. So, But you can jump over to, to MilwaukeeMafia.com right now. There are... Things all over the pages. Every page you click on, you'll find a place to sign up for the newsletter. So get over and do that as well. We do have a link in the show notes for that as well. Wow, I should sign up for this newsletter. Yeah, you should. (laughs) Sounds pretty good. (laughs) With that, Gavin, do you got contact information? Well, yeah. Other than uh, going to the website and signing up for the newsletter, which will keep you up to date on all the latest information that you could ever want, if you have something more specific in mind, you can email me, milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. I've been getting some interesting emails lately, and uh, yeah, I hope they keep coming because I'm always happy to hear from people. Unless you're going to be mean. If you're going to be mean, don't email me. <laughs> but if you if you have any any anything that you want to add to these things, any questions, any uh, appearance requests, anything like that, send it my way. If you want to just say hey, you guys smell bad and I don't like how you look. Don't do that. Don't send that to us. We don't like that. Yeah, we hear that all the time. We're used to it. Yeah, I mean, one more person, it doesn't doesn't pay. It doesn't pay. You're just wasting your time. Yeah, just just, (laughs) if you're going to do that, don't worry. Someone else has already done Done it. it. (laughs) (laughs) So with that, we will be back next week with a Patreon episode and two weeks with another Mafia episode. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.